Hello, and welcome to the February 13, 2024 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Today is Mardi Gras, and for those who celebrate Les Bontemps Roulés, this is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer, dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is singer-songwriter Spencer LaJoy. With a coy smile, a wink to the back row, and carefree expertise, they spin their crystalline vocals through a loop pedal while strumming the weathered acoustic guitar they acquired for leading worship in high school. I don't believe in much anymore, they announced to teary-eyed audiences, except a little bit of everything, and you, and me, and that Art can change the world simply by making us feel something. LaJoy is an East Coast singer-songwriter with Midwest roots, a classically trained violinist with a proclivity for Broadway vocals, and a student of Americana music with a theology degree hanging in their studio. They've been writing and touring their own autobiographical folk pop music for over a decade. But the virality of their 2021 anthem, Plowshare Prayer, secured them with a permanent place in hearts and households across the world, as well as a peculiar career as a voracious songsmith with an unshakable pastoral presence. Charming and banter-heavy, Spencer's live performances at theaters, listening rooms, church sanctuaries, backyards, folk festivals, spiritual conferences, and queer clubs keep diverse audiences laughing one moment and weeping the next. Spencer has a lengthy catalog of recorded music documenting their journey from Christianity through disillusionment. The earliest Extended play, of which one, the 2014 WYCE Jammy Award for Listener's Choice in Grand Rapids, Michigan. However, 
After coming out as gender non-binary and finding peace as a post-Christian, Spencer changed their name and released Remember the Oxygen, a four-song extended play featuring the Denver String Machine with arrangements by China Kent. The collection includes two songs that won Spencer a place among the winners of the 2021 Kerrville New Folk Songwriting Competition. <clears throat> After appearing as an official showcase artist at Folk Alliance International 2023, Spencer released Plant a Piano a solo extended play of vocally theatrical piano ballads about decay, change, and beauty. As LaJoy's first effort following the highly anticipated and mammoth studio recording of Plowshare Prayer, this stark piano extended play was an invitation for eager listeners to get up close and personal with Spencer and the craft of one song by one voice. On February 16th, 2024, Spencer is set to release Shadow Puppets, their first full-length album under their new name. Childhood memories, family patterns, shame, and desire form a cast of colorful characters in this 12-track indie folk tale of a formerly closeted queer kid from southwest Michigan. The album was produced by Chris DuPont in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and is a clever, synth-guided and lyric-driven departure from some of LaJoy's more universally anthemic offerings. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe Spencer LaJoy. Hello, Spencer. Hey, how you doing? I am just hunky-dory, and it's really great to uh, talk with you and have uh, have you on my show. I've really been looking forward to having the opportunity to get to know you better. Ah, I've been excited to be here. Your podcast is so thorough and cool. You're so cool. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to ask you a question that's kind of a standard that I ask most all of my guests, because I'm curious to know who or what turned on the light? What provided you the motivation to play piano, guitar, sing, and write songs? Uh, my family. So my parents are both music educators in West Michigan, um, have been for decades, and they raised all of my siblings. I have five siblings, all of us. Uh, to be at least, you know, fluent in the language of music. And uh, so I was raised, I played violin and uh, yeah, I just, I've never not known that light, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a really wonderful violin teacher uh, when I was in middle school. I brought in a piece to play him and he listened to me play it. Uh, it was meditation from the opera Thais and mm -hmm. I uh, played it through and he said, well, that was just about perfect. The only thing that's missing is you. And he asked me what I what I felt when I played it. And it was the first time anybody in the classical field had asked me those questions. And then, of course, naturally, I had to become a songwriter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Well, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that I, uh, you know, when I taught music preach and 
uh, students, especially, you know, if it was an instrumental work, would always ask me, say, Dr. Hurst, what's that about? I, I don't, it doesn't have words. So what's it about? And my answer to them would be, well, if you are to watch a movie in your head and that's the soundtrack, what do you see? Exactly. You know what I mean? What does it mean to you? Put yourself in that situation. Exactly. Or another way to think about it. What kind of mood was the composer in when they wrote that piece? What was on, on their mind? Mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing. But you growing up in a, in a family uh, of that size with both parents as music educators and music was probably a pretty... Um, uh, pretty much a ubiquitous sort of activity in your in your home. That's, I guess, it could be a lot like asking a fish about water. Yeah, uh, because <laughs> it was always there. I mean, it was never. It was always a given. You know, right? You'd right. Yeah, be involved it's, in some way. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. Like so many of my songwriting friends have to convince their families that their career is valid. And mm -hmm. I think that I would have to do that if I were becoming like an engineer or a doctor. I'd have to tell my family mm -hmm. I'm going into something actually practical. And they would just <laughs> cock their heads and say, you're what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will forget my mother when I told her that I was switching my major from business to music when I was in college. Oh, no. And her, her, look, her question, she just kind of looked at me and went, what are you going to do with a music degree? You know? Feel things. Yeah. Well, Heal the world. You know, I, I, I wasn't quite thinking that big, you know, oh, not sure. realizing it at that time. Yeah. But uh, so I, I kind of gave a, a response of, well, of course, I'm going to teach. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that's what I did because along the line, I learned I love teaching, too. So that was it was a great combination for me. Yeah. Well, thinking kind of pushing forward to, you know, the present day or recent past, either one, uh, what typically motivates uh, writing songs for you? What what makes your muse spew? Yeah, it can, it can vary. So sometimes the muse is super talkative. Sometimes she's really energetic. Sometimes she has a lot to say. Um, I was just telling my wife yesterday, we were driving somewhere and I said, I think I need to write a song. I feel like something stuck. That's what it always feels like. I feel like something's stuck in me. I got to get it up. But oftentimes it'll, I'll, I'll look at uh, the last song I wrote and it'll have been two or three weeks ago. And I'll tell myself, Spence, you got to sit down and write a song. Mm -hmm. you, just, you just have to sit down and do it. So a lot of times the things that makes the muse, the things that make the muse show up um, are just me creating the environment for the muse to be happy. And I have to sit down, put my butt in the seat open the journal, open the computer, pick up the guitar, um, and, mm -hmm. you know, set, set the field for, for the muse to come. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes she does and sometimes she doesn't, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. is the difference between a great song and an okay song. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it really varies. Um, I don't know if I have a whole lot of control of when she shows up or not. Yeah, it's it's always interesting, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, ideas are like toothpaste in a tube. But to, to get the, we have to find something to give it the squeeze. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I suppose, uh, I suppose those those motivations that you don't have to squeeze too hard, those are probably your better songs than the ones that you really have to work at trying to create. I would say so. Yeah, I would say yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. The ones that they're just, uh, you know, they seem to come to me from the environment. You know, I mm -hmm. yeah. That natural yeah. flow rather than something that's forced. I talked to a composer in New York one time 
uh, for the show. And he, uh, you know, he was one of these kind of very disciplined sort of, he wrote every day. Yeah. And he said that a lot of times to get his ideas flowing, he would purposely sit down and write the worst piece of music he could think how to write <laughs> just to get the juices flowing. And then he'd get into something better and away way he would go. But yeah. yeah, there's something to that. I mean, every, I do try to write every day, write something, not a song necessarily, mm -hmm. but even if it's a 10 minute object writing exercise or three pages of, you know, the grossest mm -hmm. um, stream of consciousness, nonsense thoughts off the top of my head. It's all productive. It's all mm -hmm. weeding, right? It's all getting down to something. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But, but that part of the craft is not so glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's the thing that I think lay people sometimes don't understand is it's still work. Right. <laughs> you know, really. I mean, we all think a, a lot of people think music just is something that you love so much that you don't, you know, you have so much fun up there. You look like you're having so much fun, right? Well, mm. yes, I am. But there's also the the part of the iceberg you're not seeing, which right. is all, all the work I've put in and, and, you know, to get that to where I can have fun. Right. And, uh, you know, and it's it's in, I taught a class for a while at the university called creative thinking and problem solving. Not even it wasn't even a music class at all. I volunteered to teach it because it just sounded really fascinating. And and uh, all the various techniques used by designers and and uh, other kind of creative people of how they get their their juices flowing i've always mm -hmm. found kind of interesting yeah and that's that's why i like to have to ask that question okay so when your muse does spew <laughs> what usually comes out first is it is it a lyric or a melody or a particular rhythm set of chord changes what is it i usually start with either a title or some kind of lyric some kind of idea um, and I'll sort of free write around that until I have some words that are interesting, some kind of idea, some sort of content that's interesting. Um, but then it comes together. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. I, if I try to write all the lyrics first, the melody is, it's really hard to come up with something original <laughs> in the mm -hmm. melody, mm -hmm. which is okay for a lot of folkies. I have a lot of folk songwriting friends very lyric centric and that works for them, but it's just not my thing. Mm -hmm. I need a, I need a really strong melody. I mean, I think that goes back to me being raised with the music I was raised with this mm -hmm. classical mm -hmm. music, this music only medium, right? Like that's a very important way for me to emote. So I have to put the melody and the lyrics together. I have to have the instrument in my hands. Um, so it really is. It's just like a messy puzzle. I don't know that there's any, uh, I, I don't know that there's a there's a process that makes a lot of sense to explain. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I don't I'm not surprised. I mean, it's sort of yeah. like, you know, you think I think about over the over time and how different composers have described uh, their creative impulse. Uh, I think Claude Debussy uh, used to say uh, it's your creativity is like seeing a flash of lightning mm -hmm. and then the work comes from recreating what you just saw. You know, oh. that's, that's really, really where the, where the aches and the pains come in. That's the most frustrating part. That's yeah. so, oof. yeah. Or like, or like Igor Stravinsky used to say, it's not so much music that I love. It's the craft of composition. Mm -hmm. You know, the, you know, once you get the original ideas and then working them around and, 
and and kind of getting that that happening. So yeah, everybody's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, I like your approach. Sounds almost like another singer songwriter I've interviewed who said that she basically wrote her songs sort of like she would write a theme in school mm-hmm. or an essay. She'd write a topic sentence and then and then she'd put the rest of it, you know, to fit that and and sure. and then put uh, put music to it so on so that's that's that makes sense well everybody's different that's and that's the thing that intrigues me uh not it doesn't surprise me because we're all different as human beings but it uh it it always intrigues me as to what uh each and every uh person's way of getting things going and also i've 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 had a number i should probably just start a list i ask people i said when when do you just get your ideas and a lot of people say well when i'm driving in the car yep or when i'm in the shower yep uh and then i have washing my, the dishes washing the dishes and then i have my favorite a friend of mine here in the milwaukee area who's a songwriter she gets her ideas when she's vacuuming yes so i guess any kind of activity that that allows you to kind of sublimate your conscious mind and let the subconscious pop up. I think that's exactly it. I think that's exactly it. Yep. And you're staying busy with something sort of monotonous, um, a pattern that you recognize and uh, your creative mind can kind of, you know, be free Mm -hmm. to roam. It's great. Yeah. 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 Well, let's get to an aesthetic question. Cool. Uh, The ancient Greeks claimed that the purpose of tragedy in drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. You could witness the pain on stage uh, and maybe even vicariously experience a similar amount of pain without actually experiencing the complete pain and breakdown of what was being portrayed. So when you think about your music uh, and and, uh, the aesthetic uh, purpose of poetry and songs, uh, is from your perspective, is it to serve as an emotional cleansing for your listeners? And, uh, or are you someone who's serving as an observer of, of relationships and making personal commentary? Mm. I think, I mean, not even just, I wouldn't necessarily call it emotional cleansing. And it's definitely not just commentary. I say at my shows all the time, I have a whole shtick about it, that the one thing I really believe in these days is that art and music, being art, can change Mm -hmm. the world just by making us feel something. Mm -hmm. Because apathy is the stuff of empire and feeling something is the stuff of humanity. I think it's the thing that makes us human. And so that I think is the entire reason that I do what I do, the entire reason that I make the mm-hmm. music that I make is just to feel something. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that feeling doesn't make sense, I hope that my listeners, I hope the point is not even for them to just like emotionally cleanse or like go through something, but to just activate something, to activate a heart center in them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they can carry out with them into the rest of their lives. But I think that that is like the most... Um, human making process that's that's the most humanizing mm-hmm. thing that we can experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. well yes i mean if you if there's no feeling or no emotion there is no humanity right right yeah. and I, th- I think that's the way that you participate as a listener is just to feel something that's like the most i can ask for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right 
Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it, it isn't necessarily, um, well, let's see. It It is functional in a way, but it's not functional from the standpoint of flushing out negative emotion or right. whatever. It's just to feel regardless, just to feel something. Yeah. Okay. I see that. I see that. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we're armed with that information, let's get to some of the songs on the new album that you're getting ready to release, Shadow Puppets. Now, it will come out three days after this uh, podcast airs. Right. So we're we're going to air uh, this this particular interview will go uh, public on February 13th and you're releasing your new album on February 16th. Yes. So cool. this should set up uh, listeners really well to get into your uh, new recording. Cool. Anyway, so it's uh, the album is entitled Shadow Puppets. And I, I have to tell you that I love the overall sound of your songs. Um, and when I when I try to deconstruct, that's maybe not the best word, but or analyze, maybe that's not the best word either. But you know, as a as a trained musician, I you know we tend to always pick things apart. But what okay. it comes down to is this: I what appealed to me about your music, you have a delicate yet powerful voice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think you were, yeah, and 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 in, in the delivery of your your lyric and the way that you, I mean, when you sing, I believe you. I, oh. I mean, I mean that's that's the only thing I can <laughs> think of. I don't think you're I don't think you're mailing it in. I don't think you're 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 being phony in any way, shape, or form. Okay, I, it comes across Thank to you. me just as the nature of your voice and the 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 your choice of delivery is just an awesome combination. Wow. Thank you so much. That's so yeah. kind. And then I find that your lyrics are very emotionally moving and because they paint this incredible uh, moving picture of human experience. And I would say that's just, that's the overall arching impression I have of, of your album and, and your music. Thank you. So I, 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 uh, and I give that compliment to, with all honesty. I tell my listeners, you will not be disappointed in Spencer's new uh, album. It's just beautiful. But there are certain songs that stood out to me, and I'd like to talk about those. Yeah, we please. Could. Let's go. That's great. One that really that stuck out to me was the song Chaotic Neutral. <laughs> and if funny and thing, the one thing that I kept going back and listening to that just hook, was a great hook was the chord change that sets up the pre-chorus. Yeah. I mean, cool. I thought that's just the most incredible hook. I went, wow. It just, you know, it, it was a great, a great chord. Cool. It caught my ear. It, uh, and, and, and then as I got deeper into the lyrics, what I started to notice was how the lyrics in the pre-chorus develop through the song. Mm. You know, yeah. you go from a kind of a, uh, you know, it, it changes from a happy, sad to, you know, to the happy, sad perspective on the significant other in the song. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. they progress. Uh, and, and it's specifically in that pre-chorus. Yeah. Everything else stays. There's a certain amount of stasis, but it's, that's almost where the story is being told. In the pre-chorus. Totally. 
Yeah. Oh, so I got it right. I think so. I mean, you got okay. you got it not wrong. I don't think there's okay. one right way to get it. But All that's right. a great observation. I love that. I mean, okay. I love a pre-chorus. Mm-hmm. I, I think pre-choruses can be so underestimated. Um, I love it. I, I particularly love um, how a pre-chorus can change a chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, it can change the entire perspective of a chorus by setting it up differently. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah, the whole thing in chaotic neutral is there's this significant other or a muse or a daydream or something. And and she is kind. She is loving. She is naughty. She's encouraging me to be a mess. She's There's a lot of things that she's, you know, that she represents. And um, uh, she's, she's chaotic neutral. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I love that she kind of lives in the pre-chorus. You're totally right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. talk, if you would, for a little bit about that chord change, that musical decision you made going to go into the pre-chorus in the way that you did. Because to me, that I, that's what that's what pricked up my ear initially. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. I have to look at what the lyrics are. Otherwise, I can't hear it in my head. Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> you know. Oh, man. Oh, totally. Oh yeah, where I go down to the uh to the minor two. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um the well the interesting thing about so the verses of this song are they almost exclusively sit on the one with a little bit of movement like inside the chord, but like the tonic is there the whole time. Uh-huh. Which is fun. Um so I think that that is what what is so like jarring or noticeable about that pre-chorus. Mm-hmm. Um when it comes in. Uh and I wanted so the a minor two is such a kind chord to me. It's mm-hmm. so it's like it's so gentle, it's warm, it's like leading you somewhere else. So it's almost almost always a reliable choice for a for a pre-chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, right? It like it kind of screams pre-chorus, a minor mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but that was the choice. It's it's sort of it's always I always try a minor two to see if it'll work in a, in the case of a lift, in the case of a pre-chorus. Well, you know, and then depending on which inversion of the tonic you're using. Yes. I mean, it's like if you're using a second inversion uh, mm-hmm. tonic, then to go then to go to a second inversion minor two is very easy. Right. You know, you're just yes. you know, as opposed to say if you're in root position, that's a little clunkier. Exactly. Now yep. I'm only saying that because I've just put my fingers on my keyboard here and I'm I'm thinking that. And then let's see if we try a first inversion. Well, that's I don't know. Anyway, it's just, but you're right, it is smooth. Yeah. And it provides a really nice, uh, nice change. And then it also harmonically can can then function uh as a as a uh a predominant. So it's uh yeah, it's a nice chord yes. to have. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, we sorry there, audience. Uh, that was some music theory talk, and uh... <laughs> oh, minor two is almost always preferable to a four in a, in a predominant position for me. I just mm-hmm. I love a minor two. Uh, well, see, jazz musicians love that too because a lot of jazz tunes are two five ones. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I referenced that in one of my songs in a in a good good man. I it's such an it's so insider baseball. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, there's a whole 
chorus about two five ones because mm-hmm. my family, my family, they're all jazzers. And so well, they taught you, me that. <laughs> well, there yeah. you have it. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, that's a, yeah. Well, so we've just learned a whole lot more about chaotic neutral. <laughs> yes. Maybe the audience wants to know, but I've been more fulfilled. So that's, that's important. We take care of oh, that. Oh dear. All right. Well, listen, another song that, that really caught me was surgery. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I, uh, it's a very personal kind of statement, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, something that the protagonist is going through. And I, you know, one could make the assumption it's yourself, but we won't make that assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the lyrics of the song seem to point to a lot of self-reflection mm-hmm. and personal growth. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about surgery? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's one of my favorite ones on the album. Okay. Um, on a literal level, I I got gender affirming top surgery about a year ago, and coming up to the surgery, I was thinking about how interesting it is that I have been working on loving my body no matter what, and here I was making the decision to surgically remove part of that body, and so how to come to terms with that. And I realized that our relationships with our bodies are very much the same as our relationships with partners, uh, families, friends, communities, faiths, religion. And they're the same in the fact that many times in situations of conflict, the most loving thing to do is to work really hard to make it work. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, and we know when this is true, sometimes the most loving thing to do is to cut it off, so to speak, mm-hmm. is is the surgery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's the most loving thing. And so I was thinking about my relationship with with some family members. Um, um, for me, my like fate, my journey with Christianity is very much that way too how it's not sort of an act of hate or animosity even to cut that off. It's just mm-hmm. an act of love for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what that song's about. Yeah. 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 I kind of, kind of gathered that. I didn't mean, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't come right out and say that uh, in my notes uh, related to the question, but it, I think personal growth is maybe the way I worded it. And yeah. And I think you're absolutely right that sometimes uh to move forward the only way to move forward is to go through right rather than over and right. and sometimes going through means leaving something behind right yes and uh i know that's a question that i ponder a lot with uh, uh some of the things that i'm engaged in uh mm-hmm. you know related to you know uh, music and wondering at what point in time should i decide that even though it's something i love maybe it's time to leave it lay yeah let it go and uh i'm not quite to that crossroads although i've thought about it uh but uh i don't know music is such a a powerful part of me i just can't i you know i mean five years ago i would have told people i says i'll stop conducting and stop playing when you pry my cold dead fingers away from my baton and my wow but you Uh know now five years ago i said that but now 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 i'm i'm starting to think maybe Maybe not. Maybe maybe yeah. there's a time to say, you know, I'm done with that part of my life and then try something new or move on to something else. Right. But I'm, I'm I'm kind of in that stuck between a hard a rock and a hard place point in my life with that. Yep. 
because I don't want to give it up, you know? And so, yeah, I I can understand that struggle that uh, you're feeling. And do you know what's so interesting about that too? If I can say, sometimes the hardest thing in that struggle and what I'm hearing you say is also caring for that past version of ourselves Mm -hmm. to whom this thing was really important, right? And how to take care of them and how to like make peace with that that version of ourselves to say hello younger self mm-hmm. you didn't know what i know now or i'm a i have grown out of what i was then and how do we care for our past you know our past desires in that way and that's yeah yeah because that person was 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 uh someone that deserved love and attention too of course yeah 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 i see what you mean and it's and it's kind of a uh, it could be a sad parting for totally. you to give up, give up something about what you were. Yeah, that's Absolutely. that's really a good way to think. Well, speaking of communicating to uh, a younger self, your song "Someday You'll Wake Up Okay." Oh, what a segue! I, I think that was great. It was almost like we planned it, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, that's the way that song just comes across to me. Totally is your is either your pre in your present self communicating with your past or you're in a flashback with reassurances that despite your present condition you're going to be okay in the future i mm-hmm. a little ambivalent there but you know maybe you can talk to us about it yeah yeah i i wrote that definitely as a way to like travel back in time and talk to that younger self there was there was a time in my younger adulthood when if you would have gone to that person, that young person and said, hey kids, someday you'll wake up and you'll feel basically okay about mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. That person would not have believed you. And mm-hmm. these days I wake up pretty much every day feeling basically okay with myself. And I just, so much of songwriting and art making for me is healing that younger self. But this song in particular is me just writing a letter to them and letting them know that even if you won't believe it, it's mm-hmm. gonna happen someday. Mm-hmm. Someday you're gonna be all right. Um, I don't know why that feels important. I guess that's therapeutic. It's part work, parts work. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's also something you experience. I know, like, uh, okay, so I'm semi-retired. Most of my friends who I went to graduate school are retired, mm-hmm. and I know that when we've communicated you know, via Facebook. Facebook's great for that, for catching up with people you haven't talked to in a lot of years. Yeah. And and to say, you remember back when we were in, in grad school and all we could think about was what, you know, hoping that we'd get a degree, our degrees yeah. done and and getting, uh, getting into a position that we want to be with an institution and teaching and so forth. I said, you know, and I've often thought, wouldn't it have been great if I could have written to that me 35 years ago saying, don't worry, it's all going to work out. You're going to, you're going to finish your degree and you're going to get a teaching position and all that kind of stuff. Cause man, we sure used to worry about it. That was for oh, sure. Oh, we did. Sometimes I wish that the f- like five to 10 years from now, me like future me would like come to me now and tell me how <laughs> things are going. I would love that. Future me. Yes. I would like, I would like future me to come see me too. And and just, just assure me that I'm still around. I'll tell you. (laughs) Well, anyway. uh, Okay. 
Well, that's that. Someday you'll wake up. That's a that's a great song with that uh, kind of theme in mind. And so I, I really that really, uh, uh, you know, picked up my ears. But one that really struck me on a very personal uh, note, really resonated with me personally, was the Joker. Mm-hmm. And the reason it resonated with me is, you know, someone who's been uh, I've been overweight my whole life and through high school and college and even to the present day, I'm 68 years old. And anyway, one of my defense mechanisms has always been and continues to be to be a joker, a punster, mm-hmm. a fun, the funny guy in the room. Yeah. And why? Well, I, I suppose as I analyze it, because I'd rather have people laughing with me than laughing at me. Yeah. So is that what's at the heart of your song, The Joker? Totally. Absolutely. Oh. Spot on. Yeah. Okay. I just, yeah, spot on. I, okay. I think it's such like a useful defense mechanism. This, you know, the comedic defense, the Joker defense. Um, Right. If you're, if you're making the jokes, if you're in control of the jokes, you're not, you're not the butt of the joke, or at least you can convince yourself of that. And um, yeah, that was like my upbringing. I have a huge, you know, history with bullying and and being this closeted queer kid in in a rural town, mm-hmm. and uh, not being comfortable with myself. And kids are kids have such a radar for that. They they find the kids who are not comfortable with themselves. And but I learned pretty quickly that. A, being good at something, being good at music, and B, having an overly acute sense of humor. Uh, those were the ways that I would I would stay afloat socially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. I really, I really used them. And I'm really grateful for that sense of humor today. At the same time, I'm learning, and I think the song speaks to this, I'm trying to learn how to be present in a room and not feel like I have to be ahead of everybody all the time, not feeling Mm. like I have to be two steps ahead of the joke. What would happen if I just enjoyed, enjoyed the moment? Like how magical Mm -hmm. would that be? I think I feel that magic when I'm playing music, but uh, Mm -hmm. right. Does that make sense? Is that, you know, it makes a lot of sense because, because, you know, it's sort of like, I sometimes ask myself uh, one, I wonder about, uh, what achievements I've made and if I made them for myself or if I made them because I felt like I had to, uh, impress other people. Yeah. Totally. You know, in other words, uh, you know, getting advanced degrees, being well-read, uh, you know, just being on top of everything, you know, whether it's politics or, uh, religion or history or whatever, you know, and that's, Part of that is is my my persona, but I also wonder if the you know question maybe the motivation behind it, yeah. And and sometimes I'd like to get that monkey off my back and just be one of the guys, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, what does it feel like to be a normie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's like it's like when my wife tells me I'm crazy. I say, well, that's what makes me interesting. You know, uh, I I don't want to be just average or normal, but in some ways, yes, I do. And we think right. we all Sometimes do. you wonder what it'd be like. Yeah. yeah, I wonder what it would be like. But but anyway, the Joker, I thought, was an excellent uh, rendition of, of that kind of uh, feeling and perspective and wondering why we, we might do those kinds of things. Thank you. Yeah. All right. 
Well, another song that uh, stood out to me was Convents. <laughs> and it seemed to me to be a song about a relationship that perhaps never really had a chance <laughs> because of significant difference differences of the two people in the relationship. Sure. Uh, this is coupled with looking back with a certain bitter sweetness over a love that really never came to fruition. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah. To yeah, wow. totally. I, mean, I guess I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. You really got into it. I mean, uh, so that song is a duet on the album. Yes. Um, my friend, Spencer Mackey, his name is Spencer as well. He sings on it. Uh, he and I had this this uh, theory, along with another friend of ours, have this. Th this is quite obscure, but we had a theory that there is a, a closeted, um, convent-bound kid to queer adult pipeline, and it's a joke. But the the theme there, the trope, is this. Um, religiously zealous uh, youth often is misplacing um, affection and commitment and adoration into something where it's allowed, you're right, like I'm allowed to be zealous, um, almost romantically involved with this religious entity, right? Because I can't, I can't have desire or affection elsewhere where I would otherwise put it. So that's, that's sort of the trope. And I wrote this, this love song, around that idea sort of mm -hmm, um so mm -hmm. it started it started as this forbidden queer love song where it's like we can't be together but do you want to join a convent right <laughs> you want to join a convent someday uh. but then as i was performing it out and about everybody not obviously not just lgbtq people but like everybody was resonating with it as this sort of love story um that never was uh, mm -hmm. you know, this thing, this will they, won't they, um, intense friendship. That's almost a relationship, but never becomes a thing. Like, you know, uh, we all have those stories. And so mm -hmm. it became less of a, less of a queer story and more of just sort of this universal, um, mm -hmm. universal love story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really interesting. And I, <laughs> and I, I'm thinking about your trope idea and about the intensity of, one's religious devotion and or love of of uh deity whatever yeah. whatever the deity might be as a transference of yes. love for something else that is that is forbidden love or or love that can't happen right and so we transfer that love to to something else wow yeah that, I mean, it's just a common story among like so many so yeah. many friends of mine um, who identify as queer now, uh -huh. and some of them still, you know, have religious ties, and some of them don't. That's not really the point. But a lot right. of us were just so deeply closeted and so deeply zealous religiously as young people, and mm -hmm. that's sort of my running theory: is the transference of desire. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I I wonder if there isn't is it more. Now, see, this is my this is my researcher thinking. If there isn't more literature or study out there about that sort of thing, I've been I, I, I well see I've been reading um, some books on on the cognitive science of religion, and Ooh. and uh, and then also uh, just finished another book on materialism in religion and how uh, now materialism we're not talking about uh, prosperity Christianity here we're talking about 
uh, artifacts that right. are part of of religious belief, uh, whether right. it's uh, um, uh, you know uh, crucifixes or or images of saints or right. what have you, all kinds R of ritual things. items, icons. Things. Yes, yeah. and then and physical rituals like laying on of hands, anointings, washing cool. feet, uh, yeah. you know those kinds of things, and it's. Uh, What's what's interesting in that particular study is the idea of how people will then identify the object as actually being the the source of their spirituality rather than necessarily what it represents. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So now your trope of unrequired or love that cannot happen being transferred to a uh, kind of religious fervor and so forth is that's kind of got my mind turning over that's so cool where is your like interest in in like religion and things like that where does that come from it it you? comes because i'm interested in all kinds of things oh. i'm i'm still in college i am reading i usually read three and four different books at a time oh cool uh you know i have a master's degree in theology oh i did not know that yeah i'm yeah. like that's that stuff is so cool to me yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it just started on a whim by watching a TikTok video of all things, uh, done by a man who's a biblical scholar and also uh, uh, educated in ancient languages and talking oh. about tra mistranslations of the Bible. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, and listening to what, and of course you watch one and then you go, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if he's got more. Well, of course, on TikTok, there's tons of stuff, right? Yep, rabbit hole. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, exactly. Rabbit hole. So, you know, it's just, uh, you start listening and then reading books they recommend, and then that leads you to other books and other books and other books. But I also love to read about politics and culture and, and psychology. And, uh, it sounds like you're yes, talking sublimation yeah, and transference. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 I just, cool. I go, I, you know, one thing I don't read a whole lot about, no, that's not true. I do still read about music. <laughs> mm, well you know but anyway well we've talked about a few of the songs on on the new album spencer but i i know i haven't hit them all are there some other songs from the album that you would like to talk about that i have not asked you about oh man i love all of them like they are my children so yeah. we, I, I would talk about them all day i will say the one that that gets the least attention always that i have a soft spot for is the last track which is so short it's called forgiveness and okay i have such a fondness for that song because i have a theory about forgiveness that uh -huh. is totally unfounded in anything except for my own experience i think forgiveness is a resource and that some people have a lot of it like an abundance of it and some people have a scarcity of it and that makes some people really quick to give it and extend it and some people hold grudges and not not quick to give. And I think about the people in my life who have not extended forgiveness to me, and I just assume they must have a scarcity of it. Mm -hmm. And so that song at the end is is sort of a. It's supposed to be this like gracious letter to people in my past who have failed to forgive me, um, a sort of a way to say, um, you know, at the end of your life if you have not given me forgiveness for anything yet, I think you should keep the rest of it for yourself. Mm. Um, so that's the, that's the gist of it. And I, I think it's the sweetest little song and we didn't hardly do anything to it production wise. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, that one flies under the radar, but I always jump at the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> well, that's that's wonderful. I mean, forgiveness is such a is something that's so easy to do, yet we're so reluctant to do it. I know. And and it, and you know, and we often I, maybe it's because we think that when we forgive someone, it lets them off the hook. But the truth of the matter is, is when we forgive someone, it lets us off the hook. That's right. That's right. We can get yep. rid of we can get rid of all those negative feelings that we have about something or someone. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. I'm going to go back and listen to that with a new set of ears. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thanks. Well, let's get down to some mechanics uh, that uh, I, about you and your and your your uh, your music. Who do you uh, view as being models for your vocal style and quality? My vocal style and quality. Um, Joni Mitchell, obviously. Mm -hmm. Everybody says that, but it's true. Um, she sings autobiographically in the most beautiful way. I can't, no one can emulate it, but we're all trying. Um, <laughs> Sarah Bareilles mm -hmm. uh, was, I call her like my first songwriting teacher. When I first started songwriting, she's who I was listening to the most. Mm -hmm. And as such, I still feel like she can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. Um Brandy Carlisle has a vulnerability in her delivery. It's like different every time that she sings. And I try to do that as well. Um, I try to bring myself to my performance in a way that she does. I think those three are the big ones. Okay. There are probably okay. more. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't remember which one of your songs I was listening to just as you came on, but I know there was a passage in there where your voice broke. Yeah in a way that Joni Mitchell would do. And that's exactly oh. what I thought. I says, Oh, that's a Joni Mitchellism. Oh, yeah. Joni Mitchellism. <laughs> high praise, high praise. Well, it was that, that same kind of, you know, that same kind of thing that she does. It's like I, uh, one of the songs of hers I loved to teach was, um, was uh, big yellow taxi. Of course. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, and there's that, it's a, incredible, of course, the way that she changes uh, registers so, you know, and it's humorous, of course. I mean, that's, that's, I think her point, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. she does that wonderful voice break. Well, that's great. Yeah. And then I suppose probably if I were to ask you who are the uh, songwriters you most admire and maybe emulate, you might give me the same answer. Yeah. I'd probably or give you the same answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some young songwriters on the scene these days that are super interesting to me. I'm not necessarily trying to emulate them, but I'm definitely learning from them. Okay. Um, and that's really cool. The uh, the Phoebe Bridgers, um, Lucy Dacus, Julian Baker crowd, the Phoebe, or I just said Phoebe Bridgers, Lizzie McAlpine, uh, Noah Kahn, um, mm -hmm. Maggie Rogers. They're all really interesting to me. And I, I'm exploring how they how they write almost like journal entries. They're cool. Mm -hmm. They're cool. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's great to know that there's uh, a lot of good, uh, good songwriters uh, out there. I was, I was talking to, uh, Oh heck, who is it? Try to remember. I was interviewing a song, a singer songwriter from down in Nashville uh, talked about going to the uh, Johnny Mercer uh, workshops or Institute or whatnot. And, and I thought, oh, I, I was totally unaware of this. And I said, well, isn't it great that we've got a foundation that's still working to help promote the art of songwriting? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of a lot of voices out there that are waiting to be uh, sung, a lot of songs to be sung and and to yeah. help promote and, and bring that along is, is, is really great. 
Yeah. Well, let's uh, shift gears for a little bit. And I want you to think back uh, through your past here, uh, up to and including today. <laughs> okay. I'm here. I'm been, ready. Let's do it. What, what have been some of your most memorable musical experiences? Um, you know what? Recording in the studio... So I, I play violin, I think I mentioned. Yes. Recording in the studio, not for my project, but for some friends of mine, songwriters. They arranged string quartet parts, and I got to play in the quartet in the studio. And bridging chamber music is my most favorite thing. Mm -hmm. There's something so intimate, so communicative about chamber music. Um, so getting to use that muscle again for folk music for a folk music record. Um, that studio experience is, is one of my very favorite favorites. Um, playing the main stage at Kerrville folk festival a couple of years ago oh, okay. was, was huge. I felt like the songwriting scene, like believed in me for one of the first times ever. That's, that was huge. Um, yeah. Those are two that stand out in this moment, but, yeah, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there because oh, I could I could fine. go on. Yeah, I, I'm 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 sort of tangentially uh, aware of the Kerrville Folk Festival. I used to live yeah. in Texas. No way. And the yeah, I did. I was there for 15 years. Wow. Uh, but the local public radio station KERA out of Dallas used to broadcast live from Kerrville Folk Festival. It's oh, so cool. So occasionally, you know, I would listen, and you know, when they'd have different performers, but so I know main stage is big stuff. So that's great. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, now that you've got uh, an album more or less in the can and ready to be released, are you writing any new songs and are you planning your next album? Uh, always. Always. Always, always writing new songs. Okay. There is a note on my phone that says next album, LOL, because it's it's so daunting to think about recording again. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. Okay. Um, and I, I'm working on also, I, I don't think I can talk very much about this, but I'm working on, on a musical as well. Really? Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. That's really, really fun. <laughs> that sounds like a gas. Yeah. yeah. To write a musical when, and, uh. So and it uh, are you writing the the play as well or no? So a buddy no. and my a buddy of mine and myself we are co-writing the music and someone else oh. is writing the book. Yeah. Oh, writing the book. That's yeah. the right term. The book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that sounds like an exciting project for the future, and <laughs> and and, and yeah, you know, because you're you're writing constantly, you're developing new material. You eventually will record a new album, yes. whether it's planned now or not. I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Uh, how are you for uh, keeping uh, a sketchbook of your ideas? Do you uh, do you physically write them out, or are you a uh, phone memo person? Both. Okay. Um. Yeah. Whatever's on on hand. I write my songs in a physical journal every time. Mm -hmm. Um. As far as ideas go, ideas on the fly. Since my phone is with me, that's where my okay. You know, ideas note is. Yeah. Okay. And and um, 
you find that that's uh, a valuable resource, just uh, one of those days when you feel like you've got to have a song come out. And so let me check one of these ideas and see if it makes things click. Yep, exactly. Or okay. if I'm like, something feels stuck, right? Okay. What is it that feels stuck? Often if I go back into my my notes app on my phone, I'll be like, oh, that's the one. That That's, that's what needs it. to come out. Yeah. That's what I'm stuck on. Okay, mm -hmm. I got you. All right. Well, tell us about uh, any live shows that you might have coming up and venues where you typically appear. Yes. Okay. So this is coming out on February 13th. So in two days on February 15th, <clears throat> I'll be at Midtown Grand Rapids in Michigan, okay. which is a listening room. That's my album release show. It okay. is happening one day before the album goes public, but it is happening there. Very big show. We might be sold out by the time that this podcast goes <laughs> goes live but that would be a good problem that would um, be a good problem yes and then uh coming up let's see i'm going to be in st petersburg florida for a listening room festival i'm going to be back here in the midwest um at 20 front street at uh in lake orion north star lounge in ann arbor um, the Alluvian and Traverse City. So all around here in the Midwest, I'll, I'll okay. be, I'll be around. So <clears throat> mostly in around Michigan. For yeah. the next, for the next month or so. And then the okay. summertime I'll, I'll right. be, I'll be all over the country. Wonderful. And, and so you're, you've got a nationwide tour that you've got planned then. All over the place. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. And, and, uh, I assume you'll keep us all updated on your website. Oh yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Okay. And I'll so just so you know, and just to remind my listeners, I do include in my show notes uh, the address, your a link to your website and Facebook Perfect. page and things like that. So, mm -hmm. listeners, you can you can check out and keep track of where Spencer's appearing. Well, that's wonderful. Well, you know, Spencer, I I try to be as thorough as I can possibly be, but I know I'm not perfect. So I, you know, I know I can maybe miss things. So is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? No. Wow. <laughs> I think I've said enough. Okay. I, I think so. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground and I think that's, that's awesome. And uh, Spencer, I, I want to thank you or say thanks for taking time to talk with me today. And uh, I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Thank you so much. You are the best podcast host. This has been lovely. Well, you are very welcome and thank you. Thanks. My discovery composer of the week is Giovanni Battista Viotti. Born May 12, 1755, in Fontanetto, Po, Italy. He died March 3, 1824, in London. He was the most influential violinist between Tartini and Paganini, and the last great representative of the Italian tradition stemming from Corelli. He is considered the founder of the modern French school of violin playing and his compositions among the finest examples of classical violin music exerted a strong influence on 19th century violin style. The son of a blacksmith, Viotti 
learned to play the violin by the age of eight or nine years. In 1766, he was taken to Turin under the protection of Prince Alfonso del Pozza della Cisterna, in whose home he lived and was educated. He first studied with Signor Celoniet, but when Gaetano Pugnani returned from London late in 1769, Viotti became his pupil. He was the only teacher Viotti acknowledged in later life. Viotti entered the orchestra of the Teatro Riggio in Turin in 1773. He joined the orchestra of the Royal Chapel on December 27, 1775. Late in 1779, he and Pugnani set out on a concert tour first to Switzerland, then to Dresden, and to Berlin, where Viotti's first publication, the Concerto in A, now known as Number 3, was issued in 1781. Concerts in Warsaw preceded an extended visit to St. Petersburg and Moscow, and late in 1781 they returned to Berlin. From Berlin, Viotti proceeded to Paris. Viotti made his debut at the Concert Spirituel on March 7, 1782. His success was instantaneous, and it established him at once in the front rank of all violinists. For a year and a half, he played frequently, continuing to receive the highest praise of critics and public. After his performance, on September 8, 1783, he retired abruptly from public concerts, upon which he entered the service of Marie Antoinette at Versailles. In 1788, having secured the patronage of the Count of Provence, he established in partnership a new opera house called the Théâtre de Monsieur. He hired Cherubini, as house composer. The orchestra he assembled was considered the best in Paris. He constructed a new theater and instituted a series of concerts during religious holidays in 1791 and 1792. By mid-1792, the revolution had made Viotti's situation untenable, and in July he fled to London. He had completed the most successful and influential period of his life. Probably half of his published works, including 19 violin concertos, had appeared during the decade in Paris. In London, Viotti turned again to performance and made a thoroughly successful debut at Solomon's Hanover Square concert on February 7, 1793. In 1795, he became musical director of the new opera concerts, himself performing at least five times. He played at Haydn's benefit concerts in 1794 and 1795, and he was a frequent performer in the homes of the wealthy, including the Prince of Wales. In the 1794-1795 season, 
He served as acting manager of Italian opera at the King's Theater and succeeded William Kramer as leader and director of the orchestra at the King's Theater and for the opera concert in 1797. In February 1798, the British government, suspecting Viotti of Jacobin activity, ordered him to leave the country. For a year and a half, he lived in the home of a friend in Schoenfeld, near Hamburg, where he published a set of duos, Opus 5. He left Germany in July 1799, and by 1801, and probably earlier, he had returned to London. He then retired almost entirely from music and devoted his energies to a wine business which he had entered before his exile. He continued, however, to compose and to play in private gatherings, including the weekly musical soirees in the Chinnery home. His works continued to be published in London and Paris, but he made no effort to reestablish his musical career. The failure of his business in 1818 left Viotti deeply in debt to his English friends. In 1819, having applied for the position, Viotti was appointed director of the Opera and the Teatre Italien in Paris. Viotti's tenure was considered only a mixed success. In November 1823, he returned to London for the last time with his closest companion and soulmate of 30 years, Margaret Chinnery. He died in the house in Portman Square that they had rented. The All Music Guide lists 56 recordings of Viotti's chamber music, 41 recordings of his concerti, one recording of his rondo for piano in A major, one recording of his Symphonie Concertante for two flutes and orchestra in A, and two recordings of works for voice and piano. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of the first movement of Viotti's Concerto No. 22 in A minor for violin and piano, performed by Benjamin Bielman, violin, and Yequan Sunwoo, piano. That wraps episode number 176. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing the husband and wife folk duo, The Kennedys. We have a great discussion about their new album and their experiences in music, including touring as part of Nancy Griffith's band. Other upcoming interviews include Nashville-based genre-crossing singer-songwriter Nina DeVitri, New York City-based drummer, composer, and educator Jake Richter, and Australian-based jazz saxophonist Anton DeLeca. 
so don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.